Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your concerns, your inquiries, your questions, and ultimately your comments on tennis and anything else. This is the post Roland Garros 2022 mega mailbag, and I could not be happier with how many of you commented and the quality of the comments. I'm over the moon. I am fired up to get into this mailbag. I posted on my Twitter account, at Gil underscore gross, got over 50 replies. I posted on the YouTube community tab, got over 100 comments. So um, I'm going to try to go as fast as I can and get to as many as possible. If I do not get to your comment, uh, feel free to put it down again next time because there are going to be some that are good and I just can't get to it, unfortunately. Um, let's get right into it without further ado. First one comes from Sunmaya. Sunmaya. Has Nadal's backhand improved a little bit more this year? He seems to be generating a little bit more power and less spin in his flatter down the line backhand and seems to be trusting it a lot more. It seems to be having more pop and worked amazing in Australia and French Open. Is it only me or do you see something there? Want to hear your thoughts on this, Gil? For sure. Now, I don't think it's a sudden, like, 2022 thing. I think that Nadal has been slowly building his backhand to become what it is now. But he's definitely reached the point where you're not really going to get away with going to his backhand weekly or meekly and expect that Rafa's just going to kind of trade with you and not hurt you. Uh, Rafa's done a very good job of taking command on that wing and making sure that it's not going to be a way for opponents to just kind of go there safely and extend the rally and try to make things physical. If you don't go there with quality at this point, Nadal is really going to be aggressive off of that wing. And and certainly that was not the case. Now I I think for most of his career it was a it was a path to the forehand. You know, you hit the backhand to try to get to the forehand. And that was really its primary I don't want to say sole function, that's a little bit extreme, but that was its primary function. I think he has gotten to the point where he's no longer approaching his backhand like that. He realizes that in order to play the the aggressive tennis that Carlos Moya has wanted him to execute since 2019, he's going to need to be assertive and offensive off of both wings. And that was always how the forehand was, even though uh, he's even flattened out that shot and become more aggressive in terms of intention on on that side as well. But yeah, definitely on the backhand, that is a thing. And he he won two matches on backhands down the line in, in this uh in this tournament, right? He he beat Djokovic on a backhand down the line, and I think on the rude match point as well, it was a backhand down the line. And I remember thinking it mostly after the Novak match, I was racking my brain. I'm like, I bet he hasn't won that many matches with uh, backhand down the line winners because it's it's really in the grand scheme of a Nadal match, it's not the most common point outcome, that's for sure. So I would say uh, yes, 
to the question, has he flattened out his back and got more aggressive? But I, I don't think it is a sudden this season thing. I, I, I do think that the it's been building to this point. And I think we've talked about similar things. We've had similar conversations in, in 2020 and maybe even before then. From Marge, in in my opinion, Novak's problems seem to be more mental than physical in the quarterfinal match against Nadal. Your thoughts on it? Thanks. There was definitely a lack of, especially after the second set, Novak plays best when he's wearing his heart on his sleeve and he's playing with a lot of intense emotion and he's got fire in his belly. And that certainly was missing. And it there's an argument to be made that it was missing for the entire duration of the match. Steve Flink brought it up. Amy Lundy brought it up. It, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind when I was watching the match. I will be honest with you. With that being said, looking back, you start to, to think back and... Yes, it was not a typical, it was not a typical fiery Novak Djokovic out there. I was actually finishing up my post-match video of um, Rude versus, uh, holy crap, I mean, I'm already forgetting who he played in, in the semifinal. Um, I was finishing up my post-match video after Rude against Wright Chilich. So I did not see the walkouts when uh, when Djokovic got booed walking out, which is, I, I think, something that would probably only happen in France, uh, but, but pretty stunning to me to hear that. And I only heard that after the match. I had no idea that that happened. You know, I was never convinced on this whole idea that the crowd being against Djokovic is something that helps him. And I think I've I said that before. I think I said that. I don't know when the last time I, I've said that was. But yeah, I, I had never been convinced, even after Wimbledon 2019, when he did uh, such a good job of winning in spite of the pro-Federer crowd. Uh, he still has this tendency, when the crowd is really against him, to bottle up his emotions. And we even saw that in the Federer match in 2019. Remember, he didn't celebrate when he won the match point. To me, that's not really the best way for Djokovic to go about uh, playing a match. And with that, the fact that he didn't seem to have a lot of fire and from the tennis end of things, uh, I didn't think he stayed patient and was willing to dig in physically and grind, which is exactly what I said after the 2020 final when Nadal obliter uh, obliterated Djokovic. You know, those two things in tandem will, will kind of support each other. You know, if Djokovic was not fully you know, ready to dig his heels in and suffer and fight. Well, the tactics actually did flesh that out. And was that because the crowd kind of put him in a place where he was not feeling like giving it, reaching into those, you know, extra reserves and, and he was having trouble? Uh, or I don't know if he was upset by the crowd and uh, or he was demoralized by the crowd discouraged, whatever word you want to use. I don't know if it was the crowd or what, because other than that, you can't really think of a reason why Novak Djokovic would not be 
his regular um, self from a mental standpoint. But yeah, it's hard to deny. I mean, looking back at the match and just thinking about how Djokovic carried himself, uh, the fact that we never saw kind of an outburst when when the match started to slip away from him, which is just, you know, atypical. It's something that we would generally see from him. And I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean an outburst of frustration. I mean, that is... Djokovic is not the only tennis player who that would be uh, a normal thing for us to see from him in that scenario. But we did not, which was a little bit strange. So was it more mental than physical? Eh. I, I, uh, I would have trouble saying that definitively, but it was certainly a weird performance mentally from Novak. From Les Brett Bros. Hi, Gil. 14 Roland Garros is just impossible on paper. Borg with six was already something out of this world until the 2000s. And Sampras, 14 Grand Slams, seemed unbeatable two decades ago. Could Nadal's achievement, 14 Roland Garros's, be the most unbelievable and unbeatable record in all of sports? Thanks, Francois. I don't feel like an impulse to really compare that record to what pe- folks have achieved in other sports, just because I I can't really think of an apples-to-apples comparison from tennis to any other sport. I really do think it's truly unique in a way that Sometimes other team sports aren't. I think there are more comparable examples, you know, sport to sport. But, I mean, if you want to look at golf, which does have four majors in a year, I don't know. It's it's not a one-on-one sport. It's an individual sport, but it's not one-on-one. So I think that's hard. Uh, we It's it's almost impossible, I think, to achieve the, the same dominance in golf that you can achieve in tennis. Uh, and, you know, there's just no other sports that I'm really excited to – make the comparison of Nadal 14 Roland Garros versus like what Michael Jordan did in the 90s with the Bulls or or Gretzky or or really anyone. I'm just not really I don't I don't feel the impulse to do that. I don't know if you guys want to if any of you do and want to shoot an argument at me and and if you did I would hear it. But it's not there's nothing in in my head that really comes up. I will say this about all of the things that the big three have achieved, Nadal's 14 Roland Garros titles being, I mean, absolutely at the it, at the pinnacle of, of those achievements. Uh, we have seen a trend. Now, I think there are two things with the big three. You know, one, I think they've all made each other better. And I, I refute the idea that if, one of them wasn't around or if two of them wasn't around that that one of them would have ended up with 35 slams. I, I refute that. I think that all of them have actually played a huge role in pushing each other to the heights that they've achieved. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we are seeing across all sports uh, the, the longevity factor, which Borg did not have and Sampras did not have. The longevity factor is, is just going through the roof. And like to me, that's just modern medicine. You know, the way these guys are taking care of themselves, the way they know that they need to sleep, they need to eat, they need to they need to work out, they need to stretch, they need to recover, all of these things. It's completely changed the game. So I, I know this probably wasn't the answer that this person was looking for, uh, but I, I do think this, 
in terms of all the achievements, and this isn't about Nadal 14 Roland Garros, uh, I could easily see that never being broken, although never is such a strong word that I hesitate to ever use it. The fact that there are all of these records being broken um, in many, many sports right now have a lot to do with how long your LeBron Jameses, your Tom Brady's, your Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, how long all of them are playing. It's not just a tennis thing. It is a modern medicine thing. You know, I'm sure you guys can in, um, I mean, I feel like, I feel like Messi and Ronaldo have aged pretty incredibly well also, except I'm not, I, I don't really follow them very closely or, or the sport very closely. You guys could tell me a lot of you at least. So uh, that's my thought, but 14 Roland Garros titles. I mean, look, everything, I mean, the record on clay, the fact that the fact that just I mean look, a player beating the field more than fifty percent of the time in itself is a mind blowing achievement. The fact that Nadal has a and and one of on one of the occasions he had to retire mid tournament, he has a fourteen and three record against the field in Paris. Insanity. Unbelievable. But yeah, I don't I can't compare it to other sports. I, I don't know why. It just doesn't feel like something that I can wrap my head around. Uh, this from David. Has Emil Moresmo's scheduling of both uh, of women's matches been detrimental to WTA and women's sports in general? And has night sessions brought anything to better the tournament? Thank you, Gil, for all the quality content. You are welcome, and thank you. All right, there's two things here. First of all, The U.S. Open and the Australian Open have both demonstrated how to do a night session. They demonstrated it. They did it. You schedule three matches on center court, and then you schedule two matches at night, a men's match and a women's match. That is how to do it. They showed you the U.S. Open and the Australian Open. And for some reason, the FFT still couldn't get it right. Like, how did they not foresee that this was going to be an issue? Selling a night session on one ticket, therefore having one match, and basically, uh, in this case, Moresmo just feeling incentivized to put the best of five men's matches over the, the, the women's matches in this case to because she thought that it would sell a better single ticket. Now, was that true? Uh, what was it? There were, I think there were 10 night sessions and I think it was nine men and one women's match. What, was that was that really true? Nine out of the 10 times? I would guess not. I would really guess not. Uh, would it be true that, that a men's match would sell the ticket more effectively uh, more than a best of three women's match uh, with the current state of the tours? I think that probably is true. I mean, one, you know, it's got to be one or the other, right? We don't need to say it's going to be 50-50 uh, or we're just kind of, we could be just kind of telling ourselves that, right? I think right now uh, it probably would be majority the men's match if you look day by day. I really don't think it's 9-1. to one. I I don't think that's true at all. Um, and there were some questionable decisions there. I don't have any off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, the, the, the easy way to do this, the very simple way to do this, is obviously to schedule two matches, one men's match and one and one women's match. Uh, I think it's a little bit 
uh, ridiculous to have a single ticket that's not a final uh, in the first place. I don't know how attractive that would be to me as a consumer. And then um, have night sessions brought anything better to the tournament? Not for me. Uh, I can only really, I guess I can only speak for me. No, I mean, I think, I think 14 hour days are, are long. For some reason, it doesn't tend to bother me at the US Open. You know, is this just me being, uh, having a, a bias with, with time zones? I'm not sure. Uh, did I think that there was anything particularly captivating about the night sessions in Paris? Not exactly. Uh, so, so, so no, it, it didn't bring much for me. Not for me, but I'm really not the, the target here. I would need to get feedback from, from fans. Steven, Steven Fuller. And by the way, I'm going to get to Twitter questions um, once I get through 10 YouTube questions. Hi, Gil. I said before Roland Garros that I felt the key determinant in the outcome of the men's singles was Rafa's foot. If the pain could be managed to an extent where his movement wasn't compromised, I felt that he was still the most likely winner. Two other factors affected my judgment. Alcaraz's lack of Grand Slam pedigree and five-set experience and Djokovic's potential stamina problem, which no one else seemed to highlight. Novak had looked pretty good at Madrid, but he did lose to Alcaraz, albeit in a third-set breaker. He'd looked even better in Rome, but he was not pushed physically in any of his five matches, winning each in straight sets. The two occasions he had really been pushed physically since his return, against Davidovic Fikina at Monte Carlo and against Rublev in Belgrade, he faded dramatically in the final set of both, to such an extent that by the end of both matches, he was really just going through the motions. He appeared to fade badly again towards the end of the fourth set against Rafa last week. I have a feeling that even if Novak had won the fourth set, Rafa would have had the legs and the lungs, not to mention the determination he showed in the final set against Felix, to win the fifth fairly comfortably. It seems to me that Djokovic is struggling when it gets past three and a half hours in an intense match these days. He has now turned 35. I know he's always been supremely fit, and most pundits have assumed he would be able to continue at the top level into his late 30s. But it, could it be that old father time is starting to creep up on him? Could we be seeing the start of the inevitable physical decline in Djokovic? It's a well-written comment. I got to take a sip of my latte before answering a comment like that. Um... Thought about this. I think we have to see a little bit more. Now, first, let me address kind of, and you guys have heard this before. The Davidovich match, the the Rublev match. I think that's typical of a, a Novak Djokovic in uh, March to early April, just not being in great shape at that time of year. Over the course of the last couple seasons, I think we've seen that as a pattern. Um, I do believe that we saw it last year um, at times, and then by Roland Garros, he was fine. But what I really wanted to look at here was, I guess, the the recent history in, in majors for Djokovic. So I, I pulled it up. Uh, the first thing I looked at is just five setters, and he, ha he is on a six-match winning streak in five-set matches at majors dating back to Wimbledon 2019 when he beat Federer. 
Uh, he beat uh, Team in the final at the 2020 Aussie. He beat Tsitsipas in the semis at 2020 Roland Garros uh, before losing um, to Nadal in that final. Then again at the Australian Open, he won that match against Taylor Fritz when he hurt his oblique and and came back to uh, to win the fifth set 6-2 there. Uh, you have the Musetti match. That wasn't really much of a physical test. There's, um, a, you know, granted. And then you had the Zverev match last year at the U.S. Open when he won in five sets. He won 6-2 in the fifth. So those are his last five setters. That's the first thing I looked at. Now I want to look at his losses, his recent losses in majors. And think about, well, were they induced by fatigue? Nadal, this match against Nadal, I, I agree. I think that he was, I think he did fade physically. And I, I do have my reasons why. I'll get to him in a moment, but I do think he did. You have the Medvedev match in last year's final. He had no legs. Is it understandable? Played four sets every single match. Played five sets in the semis. Had the the weight of Grant, you know, the pressure of trying to complete the Grand Slam on his shoulders. Yeah, I, I do. I think that there's a lot of things that can explain away the fact that Djokovic didn't have legs in that match. I do. After that, though, after you know the last two, you really do struggle to find an instance where Djokovic lost in a major and you put any of the blame on his physicality. You have Nadal, 2020 RG final, lost in three. Uh, Carino Busta, default. Vavrinka at the U.S. Open in 2019. Uh, retirement. Team at Roland Garros in, semi, in the semifinal. Uh, that was a uh, that was a five-set loss, uh, but I don't think it was... I don't think physicality had anything to do with it. I think he got outplayed in that fifth set by a, a peaking team. Um, and then and then you're back in 2018, which is further back than I really care to go. So I think we, we'd have to see this pattern play out a little bit more. I mean, I appreciate the idea that we are, uh, you know, pointing out that it's it was an issue, certainly over the course of this clay court season, pointing out that in Rome, we never really saw his physicality tested that we we didn't really see we didn't see it tested until the Nadal match certainly here at Roland Garros I mean beating everybody in straight sets rather easily so uh, all of these things are fair to point out but I don't think that there is a enough of a pattern yet to suggest that Djokovic's uh endurance within a match is is fading now in order for me to refute that claim and take the, the stance that I'm taking, I do need to explain why he faded in the Nadal match. And the more I've distanced myself from that match, and this is something that I didn't talk about on Monday Match Analysis, the more I've really begun to believe that it was the, the flow of the match, the match flow, that really uh, doomed Djokovic and allowed Nadal to have more legs at the end. And, it, you know, all credit really goes to Rafa in this sense. I feel like if if Djokovic wanted to be the fresher player in the fourth set and beyond, he really put himself in a hole by, by losing the first set and going down three love 
realizing that, okay, I can't go down two sets to love here. I need to give everything. And there was an unbelievable push from Novak in the second set to climb back from down three love and to win the second set. I mean, it was the kind of energy dump that I think it ended up costing him the match. Now, it was completely necessary. And by the way, what was the key here? The energy dump was so drawn out and so rigorous because Nadal never let up his resistance. When Djokovic started playing well in the second set, Nadal continued to play well also. You know, there were, I mean, there were some issues, I guess, with Rafa, but it it really was more about uh, Novak pulling out a tight second set after really playing an unbelievable uh, level. But Nadal didn't go anywhere, and he made Djokovic work extremely, extremely hard, even after raising his level. So if you look at how the energy was managed in this match, with Djokovic being thoroughly outplayed to start the match for, by the way, the third year in a row, the third year at Roland Garros in a row, the, the 2020 final, the 2021 semi, when Djokovic did end up making a push towards the end of the first set, but he was down five love. And then once again, third year in a row. So if you're Novak, you have to start better. You must get off to a better start. Or, or you are putting yourself in a hole, not only on the scoreboard, but also physically, because it's going to take a lot of energy now to uh, to play kind of a, a desperate second set, so to speak. And then, I, I, you know, we saw Djokovic just kind of get away from the tactics that won him the second set, maybe because it took so much physical suffering, and deep down, he, he didn't think he could do it over and over and over again. All right, here's one from Gene. Hey, Gil, thanks for the videos during the uh, during the French Open. You're very welcome. What are your thoughts on the ATP announcing that Madrid and Rome uh, becoming two-week events next year? And what do you think will be the pros and cons in terms of a business standpoint for the sport in general? So I think what Godenzi's logic makes a whole lot of sense here. You know, his... His reasoning is this. The best product that tennis has, especially that the ATP has, because remember the ATP is independent from the slams. The best product that the ATP has are these combined Masters 1000 events. You have the men and the women together. You have these really strong fields where all of the stars are playing. And if you are going to market your product to rights holders, to television rights holders, those are the products that are going to demand value. The 250s remain remain a niche product that do not have a lot of television appeal, that do have a lot of local appeal. But remember, economically, financially, that is really not what brings in the dollars. What brings in the dollars is television. That is true across all sports, less so in tennis, which is exactly what Gaudenzi is attempting to fix here. So here we have a premium product, and we have the ability to stretch out the premium product. We can have, instead of seven days, or in the case of Rome, in the case of uh, Madrid-Rome, instead of that premium product lasting 14 days, well, 
we can have at last 20. Um, or actually, I think in this case, 22. We can have it last 22 days. You know, economically, to me, that makes sense. Now, a lot of fans, at least on... Now, first of all, I feel bad for the 250s. I think the 250s are going to get buried. There are going to be local communities that are going to lose their tournaments. There are going to be great events that that I enjoy very much that have incredible charm to them that are going to be lost in this. I, I feel bad about that. I hate that. Um, so that's the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing is that just like scrolling through my Twitter feed and trying to get a pulse for this, it seems like most fans are upset. It seems like most fans tend to think that uh, the the long masters can, can feel too long, that they can feel like a bit of a slog. Um, I'm a little bit, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit hesitant to, to, to say that because do I feel like they are still generating more buzz? These masters events, are they still generating more buzz? Even if there's a little bit fatigue sometimes than a week of two fifties generate. I mean, I just, I think absolutely. So, uh, I, I totally get where Andrea Gaudenzi is coming from here and I'm, I'm not sure I need to hear arguments about why why it's bad for the fans other than it feels long to them. Uh, I just I, I kind of need more more than that because you know there's gonna be tennis anyway every week all the time. I mean that's the whole nature of tennis is that it's always going on. So I don't really understand the whole well I'm I'm fatigued from these masters being too long. I mean, I'm um I'm struggling. I'm struggling there with the logic. I don't know. I don't really get it. I don't I don't understand why fans are upset. But that's something that will probably become more clear to me as I uh as I start to gain more understanding. Also, this is the kind of thing we got to feel it out. We got to see we got to see what happens here. But I don't know like do I feel like Indian Wells in Miami are too long? Am I do I complain? Not really. I'm not complaining. Samarth uh, do you think, given Rafa's mentality and how he's already won two Grand Slams this year, if he comes out fine with his treatment and goes into Wimbledon without an injury, does he legitimately have a chance to win Wimbledon this year? I'm assuming he'll give it his all, considering he can win three out of three slams this season. Also, I don't know why that doesn't really say four out of four. Uh, also, who do you think are Rafa's most intimidating opponents this Wimbledon? I mean, I don't have a complicated answer to that question. Nadal, if healthy, you'd have trouble arguing that he's not the the second favorite, and you're always the second favorite, unless we're talking about like Iga Swiatek in the women's field on clay. The second favorite always has a fantastic chance to win. So, yeah, definitely. I think Nadal's played pretty well at Wimbledon in past seasons, uh, beginning in 2018 when he lost to Djokovic in the semi was probably not much further than a game or two away from winning Wimbledon that season. In 2019, he made the semis and uh, didn't play great against Federer, but he was right there in the final weekend once again. So uh, he has much more pedigree at Wimbledon than anyone else outside of Djokovic. So yes, for sure, he has a, uh, a very good chance, a very legitimate chance to use the word that you used. 
And uh, I'm not going to say, like, who are his most intimidating opponents this Wimbledon. Uh, there will be a Wimbledon power rankings coming out at some point, for, for those of you asking. From Motaz, is Carlos Moya one of the most underrated coaches in tennis? I feel he doesn't get enough credit for how much he's improved Rafa's all-court game in the past six years. Slice net play and early aggression. Do you feel Rafa would have had as much success into his 30s with Tony? Um, and second, and second, uh, what's your take on the relatively cold handshake between Rafa and Nole after the match? Moya is probably a little underrated, huh? I mean, look, Nadal's adaptation in his to offset the effects of his decline in speed and movement, which is still, by the way, pretty good. It's just nothing nothing close to where he was in his prime. And that goes for not only how, how well he covers the court, but also for how, you know, his endurance, his ability to, to play a lot of long rallies. It also accounts for that as well. You know, Moya is the architect behind Nadal's ability to fend off drastic decline as a result of his physical decline. So he deserves enormous credit for that. And, you know, not only going to it initially, but but sticking with it and making sure that Rafa continues to trust it and get better and better in that area. Because I do feel like, and I'm glad that I'm going to get this thought out, I do feel like the there's been a, a huge improvement in Nadal's ability to trust his plus one game, his early aggression. His trust in that in clutch moments feels so far superior to me here in 2022 than it has in past seasons. Um, especially if you look at 20... Uh, 2018 and 2019, which were were good years for Nadal. I mean, he he's been good pretty much year after year. I just I, I felt that there have been some unclutch moments from Rafa, and and this season you can barely pick out one. You can barely pick out one. So I'll I'll focus on this tournament alone. Perfect fifth set against FAA. Perfect, or or he raises his game in the first set tiebreak against Verev. He's perfect in the fourth set tiebreak against Djokovic in the quarterfinal. Now these are all moments where there's a lot of pressure, and Nadal is coming up with his best under pressure, basically every single time. So that that was a major key to this event, which um, I'm happy to point out. What's your take on the cold handshake between Rafa and Nole? I, I have given no thought into that. Uh, do I think that their relationship has uh, has frayed in recent years? I do. Um, I think that you know they used to be good buddies. They they really were. I think they were very close. Uh, that is no longer the case. I think that both of them have realized how many things they disagree on. 
and I um I I don't know if Australia this year was was an inflection point or if if that if this started to happen before Australia this year where I'm sure I'm sure Djokovic would have liked Rafa to kind of go to bat for him um which Nadal among many many other players did not um I I don't know if that was a, an inflection point or not but it really doesn't really surprise me I guess that that they are no longer as cordial as they once would I just think they have over the years not seen eye to eye on enough different things where eventually that is going to take its toll on the relationship. So yeah, I, I don't think they are they are good buddies anymore. I don't think Federer and Djokovic were ever uh good buddies, but I think Nadal used to be pretty close with with both Federer and Djokovic, and I just don't think that's the case anymore. But I, I didn't pay much attention to the handshake and to be to be honest with you, I don't even recall what it looked like at this point. couple more from YouTube, then we'll go to Twitter. Calculating Dork. <laughs> Thanks for being a member. Uh, I understand the dissatisfaction with Nadal Djokovic playing in the quarterfinal, but I don't see it that way. One, having the most anticipated match already in the quarterfinal is not a letdown at all. Same as having one half of the draw um, OP, which creates automatic surprise underdog for the final. I don't I'm not quite grasping that, but I'm just going to move on. Uh, because it creates a special dynamic when the winner of this match had to play two other matches to win after winning the match. I would argue Nadal Zverev was match of the tournament considering its unique flow, which doesn't happen very often. Two, the draw system with the seeds is absolutely okay by me at the moment. Nadal was the number five seed because he didn't play the clay season well, or rather at all. And Novak was just unlucky, but the chances of him getting one of Nadal Alcaraz or one of Rublev Rude were 50-50. So I don't think this system downgrades the top seeds at all. I wouldn't mind the same matchups in late stages, even though symmetric seed draw wouldn't even result in that as the rankings are changing all the time. And I wouldn't mind only 16 seeds, but I honestly don't see much flaws in the current draw seed system. I enjoy the buzz before the draw, the seeds and non-seeds too, and the seed categories for each round from round three onwards uh, seem to create a decent balance. So I wanted to include this comment because it, it gives a, a, another view and it's articulated well. And there are a lot of good points in here. I think the best point, let me just say what I think the best point is in here. I enjoy the buzz before the draw. I think that's the best line in this comment. Because that's probably the thing that would be lost more than anything. If, if you went to symmetric draws, you would no longer have the draw become a kind of any sort of suspenseful product, which which it is right now. Now, the funny thing is, I say that, but tennis completely fails to capitalize on draw reveals. In a, I, and I, I can't find a, any, any less blunt way to, to put this. I mean, it's pathetic. It is pathetic, the oversight that goes on. I, I don't have to single out a single tournament. It is the vast majority of tournaments 
fail spectacularly at building up buzz for their tournament by turning their draw reveal into a simple digital product. It is such a no-brainer to me to do that. You market your tournament. There is no better way to market your event, to build up buzz for your event, than to make a simple digital product that coincides with the reveal of your draw. I mean, if I'm a tournament and I, let's say, um, have hired, I'm going to, I'm going to pick out, um, someone who I have great respect for. And I think is awesome. Who is a, an, an MC, a court MC at, at many of these events and does a lot of digital stuff as well. Uh, Blair Henley. If I'm a, if I'm an event and I'm hiring Blair Henley to, um, do, do whatever, right? MC Accord and lead any sort of digital series, uh, interview players prior to the tournament, whatever. I am 100% putting Blair and maybe a pundit or or someone else, and I am incorporating the reveal of the draw um, with, you know, and presenting it in a way, I'm going to keep this very simple, in a way that can be consumed by people. In a consumer-friendly manner. Uh, and I, I think if, if tennis were able to do that, and again, like March Madness is, is your example here. You have a show on national television which reveals the draw, which reveals the bracket. And for those of you who are not in the United States and don't comprehend what a big deal this is, this is a appointment television appointment television to the highest degree for any sports fan that they sit down and they watch the draw reveal for the NCAA tournament. It is a non-negotiable viewing for most sports fans in the United States. And all it is is revealing of a draw because that suspense sells. And the only good thing, in my opinion, about Nadal Djokovic being in the quarterfinal, or one of the good things that could have come, well, if Roland Garros actually had a product, made a product out of the draw reveal, it would have made for great television. Wouldn't it have? Would have made for a great digital product. But that's not the case. So um, that suspense factor is real. Uh, we have that all the time in tennis. We can sacrifice just a little bit, a smidge of fairness for entertainment value. And, and maybe this could be an example of that. Uh, so I know I kind of go off on a tangent here, but a lot of your comment actually, I think, stands on its own. A lot of it. So I'm sorry I wasn't showing my face throughout that answer on YouTube. I meant to be. Yeah, I guess I addressed everything. Uh, I mean, look, I would say the, the counter argument to you saying, well, it's fine that they met in the quarterfinal. I mean, to me, there's nothing like a Sunday or in the women's, in the case of the women's, a, a Saturday morning where that's the match and it's the weekend and everybody's available to watch. And, you know, I, I want that. I want that final to be good. You know, to me, there's nothing like it. I want that final to be good. And uh, unfortunately, we had a, a fear that the final wouldn't be good and that fear was realized. One more from YouTube, then I want to go to Twitter. Uh, from Sumya, 
is losing Marion Vida looking as a bad move for Djokovic now? As we have seen what had happened in 2017 and early 2018 to Novak from a mental-slash-psychological side of the game, uh, seems to be lacking killer edge this time as well. And outside of Nadal, if he plays, who could be Novak's biggest challenge in this year's Wimbledon? The same question that I didn't answer for Nadal. I'm not going to answer it uh, for Novak either. I'm going to hold off on that. Uh, But uh, the Vida thing, yeah, it's it's one slam. You just can't overreact. Can't. By the way, I just realized um, something I failed to mention at the very start of the mailbag when someone asked me, uh, was Djokovic's loss more mental than physical? Uh, even Isovic slammed Novak, was openly critical of Novak for his body language, you know, and just expressed his disappointment. And I don't have any problem with that from Goran because I'm sure Goran said that to Novak's face, man to man. For him to put that out there, it, it, I kind of like that. Uh, I think he's trying to light a fire under Novak and making sure it doesn't happen again. And and that's what a good coach should do. A good coach needs to push their player, push their player forward. Um, so I, I liked I liked that from Goran, but it's just kind of more more evidence that there was a little bit more than X's and O's to to Novak's performance, and and there was something missing when it comes to the uh, t- to use the words that in this comment there was a little bit of killer instinct uh, missing from the performance. But I still think it's fine. I really think it's fine. Uh, Even Isovic will be up to the task, in my opinion. It's just uh, how I see it. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe this is going to be another turning point in Djokovic's career for the worst. And uh, it'll turn out that Marion Vida is a extraordinarily essential figure in the Djokovic box. I just don't see it. I do not think it's going to play out that way. And I think... Uh, the Vida storyline will slowly go away as Novak has success without him. That would be my prediction. Let's go to Twitter. Let's do it. Appreciate everybody who uh, weighed in on Twitter. At Gil underscore gross is uh, the place to go to follow me on Twitter. And I'm going to run through these relatively fast. There's going to also be some repeat questions, stuff that I've already answered. Uh, Oshwin, will Rafa make it 15 Roland Garros titles? I don't normally predict these things. I mean, uh, right now I'm feeling yes. Uh, Nathaniel, if Rafa stays healthy, what are his chances for the career Grand Slam? Um, and then I know that there's another question here. Let's just skip to that one so that I can can read it. Um, there's another question about this from somebody. Okay, anyway, uh, I... I, I I won't read it right now, but anyway, someone is asking me, someone said basically in my Twitter mentions, uh, I heard you say that it, it seemed unlikely that Rafa could win the career Grand Slam. Uh, why did you say that? Uh, could you expand on that? Well, yeah, I can. Uh, Djokovic, in the case of Djokovic, we knew he would be an overwhelming favorite for Wimbledon, you know, to the extent that it was difficult to comprehend anybody else winning. You know, that's how extreme it was for Wimbledon. And then we knew that he'd be a favorite at the U.S. Open, but not an overwhelming favorite, but the favorite. So for Nadal, we know he won't be the favorite at Wimbledon. It will be Novak. And then at the U.S. Open, he could be the favorite, but that is yet to be seen. I don't know. And of course, being the favorite doesn't ensure, as we saw with Djokovic, that you are going to win anyway. So even if you're going to be the favorite at two majors in a row, 
you can do the math, implied probability, uh, I'm pretty sure it still comes out to, even in the case of Novak, below a 50% chance that he was going to win both. So, yeah, I mean, to say that it looks likely that Nadal is going to pull this off here and win the next two, no, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't go there. If you're going to, again, there's a, there's a middle ground here, right? People being like, does Nadal have a chance at Wimbledon? Of course he does. But then it's like, does it look like Nadal is going to do the Grand Slam? No, not really. It doesn't look like that right now. We got to wait. Um, and it's looking unlikely because it's, again, I think, I'm pretty sure it's just mathematically unlikely at this point. Oops. Um, sorry, it's a lot to navigate sometimes. Um, I can't get Novak's fluctuating energy level and intensity in the Rafa match out of my head. Do you think it was an effect of his lack of matches this year? If so, I have to wonder if it will continue to be an issue going forward. Yeah, once again, um, I, I look at the match flow as extremely important here. And the the incredible intensity of the first and second sets were were also a factor. Uh, let's monitor it, but that's that's what I see as the main factors. And then perhaps also uh, the the last thing was a failure for Djokovic to dig as deep as humanly possible. I think that also could have played into it. Because it goes both ways here, right? In Australia, remember I said I'm pretty sure there's some mind over matter things happening for Nadal. When he's going four and a half hours against Medvedev in the Australian Open final, part of it is Nadal being in great shape. The other part of it is his mind pushing his body to the limit, to the absolute limit. And we talk about Djokovic just looking like he was missing a little bit of that a little bit of that spark, a little bit of that bite, those fangs in this match. And that could that could uh, reveal itself in a player looking a little bit weary and unwilling to dig deep physically, which is what we saw. So I think there are a multitude of factors. Multitude. Um, another one here. Oops. Why tennis Twitter slash journalist podcasters do not talk to their employers when they have an issue with the quality of men and women's matches at prime time? Uh, they seem to be fake tweeting about it and then just get the paycheck from the networks. I mean, most of the people complaining about it, they have no control over it. The networks don't decide what the schedule what the scheduling is i mean they they might have some some sway and some input input but it's really uh the tournament organizers and most of the journalists who are complaining about this that you are probably pointing out to have absolutely no power whatsoever to change anything so uh them complaining is just about all they can do um wimbledon why don't they just admit they were wrong let everyone play and let everything go back to the way it should be. Well, um, because I, I'm not sure 
any minds have been changed, I, I think they probably think that they would probably make the same decision once again. Now, uh, the only question about that is, well, would they have done it if they also knew that rankings points would be stripped from the tournament? That is a question. But would they do it again? I would say probably. Again, I think as as more information has uh, has kind of revealed itself, I, I still stand by the idea um I still think a big part of this, it turned out to be the UK government uh, not wanting a Russian champion, not wanting the royalty, the members of the royal family to be presenting a Russian with the trophy at the end of the event, uh, unwilling to relent on perhaps a compromise that could have been, okay, well, let's, uh, let's alter our trophy ceremony or something like that. Uh, you know, I am hearing... And I am, I'm finding that that was likely a big reason why the UK government uh, pressured Wimbledon into this decision. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's too late. I mean it's a it's a moot point. They've made their decision, and uh, you never look better by going back on your decision. That that almost never makes you look better. I gotta say, or even if it could make you look better, you almost never see it in the first place. So. I just, I wouldn't count on that happening. Let's just leave it at that. Murray versus TT. Okay, that's, how do you think Alcaraz's game will look on grass? I have really no concerns about Alcaraz's game on grass. His, uh, his strokes are compact enough that I don't think he is going to have any issue with, uh, being rushed or or losing a lot of power based on not having a lot of time to set up on the ball, um, it's really just the the serve that is one thing to watch. Like he his kick serve is not going to be as effective on the grass because you don't get that that high bounce anymore. So now it's kind of back to is Alcaraz uh, hitting his spots on his flat serve and his slice serve, and is he getting anything out of his serve on the grass where uh, his opponents, regardless of how good a returner Alcaraz is, he's going to run up against opponents who are going to be getting a lot of free points off of their serves. And is Alcaraz now at a disadvantage on grass because he is not getting a lot of purchase out of his serve and a lot of his peers are. So that's what to watch out for on the grass. But uh, look, he's an aggressive player. He, you know, he does a good job of taking short balls and making sure that they don't come back. And all of those things will, will suit him very well. Uh, his backhand holds up. Um, there's obviously the variety in his game and let's see, let's see. Uh, I don't, I don't see why he can't be good on grass except uh, the, the serve. Do you think Rafa's return of serve on clay is better than Novak's? That one was from Pratik. The last one was from Reed. Yeah, I do. Especially the, the second serve return, which is just based on the, the weight of shot that uh, Nadal can bring from a deep return position. But yeah, I think, I think it is better on clay. I think Nadal's... Um, you know the way the way Nadal returns deep in the court and and neutralizes the 
the biggest serves on clay is is probably probably slightly superior to uh, what Djokovic's return strategy is for the clay, which is to stay up on the baseline and, and to take those returns a lot earlier. Uh, the, the way that Djokovic generally rushes the server, uh, it simply doesn't have the same effect on the clay uh, because it's difficult to to rush players on, on the clay because the ball loses so much energy off of the bounce. Uh, we've also seen Djokovic kind of struggle with that kick serve on clay. That particular return. So yeah. Uh, next step for Coco Golf. Keep going. Keep keep looking to uh, improve that forehand, and that that's the biggest thing right now. Can Rafa win Wimbledon? Yes. Scroll down here. Um, I have two questions. Uh, one, assuming she's healthy and ready to go, how will Iga's game? Ad, um, ad, adapt to Wimbledon grass. Uh, what areas of her game may still be vulnerable on grass? And two, how concerning is the lack of consistent quality at the top of the WTA beyond Iga? Is there much hope of a serious rival for Iga that will emerge soon? It felt like there was potential for great rivalries not that long ago, but a lot has gone wrong since. Uh, first question, Iga on grass. Okay, same thing with Alcaraz with the serve. There are a lot of players who serve better than Iga. So on clay, that might not matter as much. Okay, the serve is just not as big. It it doesn't hold as big of a piece of the pie chart, right? If you're looking at, okay, how are points, how are points decided here? Are a lot of points one-shot rallies or two-shot rallies, serve, return, miss, right? A lot of shots, one, one or two-shot rallies. On clay, no, small piece of the pie. On grass, big piece of the pie. Okay, now of those points, which is now a big piece of the pie, who is winning those points? Alcaraz, Sviantec, it's not going to be them. It's not going to be them when, when they face some of the best servers in the world. So same concern for Carlos and Iga on the grass. Um, will Sviantec's forehand be as dangerous when she loses a little bit of time on it? That's another question for you. But ultimately, overall, I think, no, you know, game will translate to the grass. I think it will. Return of serve is is one thing to watch, though. You know, is she going to be um, less returns in play? Really, really, is Fiontech going to lose the serve return dynamic in a significant way is, is mostly the thing to watch. Um, okay, then the second one was uh, rivals. Let's just give it, to, let's give it some time. Look, there is nothing I can say. Nothing that I can say about Sviantec's competition right now. Nothing positive. It's it's non-existent. Okay? But here's what I can say. It's been like three months. Let's give it a sec. Let's take a breath. Let's breathe. Let's allow players to try to get up to her level. And let's see... You know, I'm confident that someone is going to emerge um, as as a rival for for Iga if Iga stays stays on top, like it's looking like she will. Um, I'm quite certain that it will happen in time. I'm not really sure who it's going to be, but it'll be someone. 
Uh, can you foresee... Oh, wait. First one. Felix has looked pretty good in the last year in majors. Yeah, that's true. He's been uh, quarterfinals or, or better, I want to say. in um, No, fourth round or better in the last four, at least. I don't have the exact stat. But yeah, yeah. He's been very good. Uh, his game has matured and is much more well-rounded now. What do you think Felix needs to do to become a major contender? Well, um, he needs to continue to improve the parts of his game, which he's already uh, been improving. You know. Movement. Controlling the errors on his forehand. Point construction. Court positioning. You know, moving in and, in and out of the court. You know, toggling from defense to offense. And these are all things, you know, he's getting better and better at. I think he needs to keep improving on them. Um, yeah, the, the the serve is solid. The return is solid. The backhand, you could say, there are some questions about it, the backhand. I don't think the backhand is going to get much better. I just don't think that's really an area that he's ready to improve. I'll elaborate more on that a little bit later. Can you foresee a a Saudi-backed tennis tour akin to what's happening in golf? That's a good question from Matt. Um, tennis needs to kind of take a look at that and beware. I don't. I I, I wouldn't guess that it's about to happen, but um, it is a cautionary tale. You have to make sure that the players feel like they are being taken care of. If we go too long where the players feel like they are not getting a good enough revenue split, where they feel like they are not getting a seat at the table, where they feel like they are being taken advantage of. If that happens long enough, the forces of free market competition will begin to have a say. You know, it will happen. We haven't seen it happen. I would argue that it hasn't reached a boiling point with the players enough for something like that to happen. But all I can say is um, it is something that that can happen. And the, the main way to avoid it, if you are the tours and the governing bodies, is just to make sure that the players feel, uh, make sure the players stay happy. Someone will come in and, you know, if, if the players are unhappy. Now, again, I actually don't think, I know that there's a lot of, a lot of ways where things can be better. Uh, especially for the lower-ranked players. Uh, but I would say, in, in large part, there's not enough momentum. Um, and the PTPA is... It's more complicated than this, but it's in a lot of ways, it's example 1A that the players are not desperate enough right now to, to actually do anything about uh, making taking serious risks to make their situations better. It seems like they're not ready to do that right now. Uh, one player on the men's side and the women's side that was a revelation for me, this Roland Garros. Um, I guess the the easy pick, and I, I haven't given this any thought, so I might be missing someone. Yeah, the easy pick on the women's side would be Trevisan. I mean, I, I really, I truly thought the 2020 thing was a total one-off and a flash in the pan. And then, uh, you know, she wins her maiden title in Lyon and then makes the semifinal of Roland Garros. I mean, that's pretty... It's pretty wild. I, I truly thought that was going to be a total one and done for Trevisan, and uh, I suppose it's not. So uh, she's my pick on the women's side, 
And on the men's side, it's, it's got to be Chilich, another semifinalist who I, uh, on clay, are, are you kidding me? I, I did not think that, I did not foresee that happening. No way. Any thoughts on the night matches? I've talked about that. Yeah, nine to one. Nine men's matches, one women's match. Okay, uh, Rust Cole. Had he not been banned from the tournament, how much of a factor do you think Medvedev would have been at Wimbledon? I feel like if he found a way to return effectively, or if he finds a way to return effectively, he is going to be an enormous factor at Wimbledon. I think he will win Wimbledon if he finds a way to return effectively. You can't return, I don't think. Uh, returning from that deep a position is a problem on grass. Um, it's just too difficult for him to defend and dig back into the point uh, that those slice serves that pull him out wide, they stay too low, they're too nasty, they're too difficult for him to return. He's got to cut off those angles. But if he can find a way to figure out the return of serve, he is uh, immediately going to be someone who I think will have enormous success at Wimbledon. How does Novak catch Rafa at 22 with vaccine restrictions? Well, I mean, other than the United States, which um, obviously hosts the fourth slam, the fourth major, other than that, uh, I'm not really understanding where Novak isn't going to be able to play at this point in time. I'm pretty sure that, uh, look, I, I do think that the court is going to overrule that three-year ban in Australia, but we'll have to see what happens Quite confident that the court will not hold on to that. Fictional Frontiers, as a fan of the sport in general, certain fan bases seem to spend most of their time trying to devalue another player's victories through dark insinuations and conspiracy theories. Has this always been the case? Should they simply be ignored? Any solutions? Hmm. Well... Yes, they should definitely be ignored. Are there any solutions? Well, no, I don't think so. It's the internet. I mean, we're we're seeing it in all facets of uh all facets of pop culture, sports, politics, you name it. There is uh there are a lot of volatile opinions on the internet. And, and that's not going to go away. I guess the best thing that we can do is remind ourselves that, you know, the, the vocal minority on the internet is really just a small segment of the population that probably isn't as representative of the larger population that we generally like to believe. And that's how you can sleep at night. Uh, from New Day, you were vocal about your lack of confidence regarding Rude's chances at the French Open. You felt there was something off about him, and you weren't exactly sold on him playing a week before Roland Garros. Would you say the way he lost the final confirmed your pre-tournament views about him? I wouldn't say that. I would say on a on a scale, you know, on the scale from like I was right about Casper Rude to I was wrong about Casper Rude, I would go more towards I was wrong, uh, because what we saw from Casper at this event is pretty emblematic of what we had seen from him in 2021 and um, even a little bit 2020. It's not emblematic of, 
of him being off in 2022. I mean, what he did by beating the players that he did rank slightly below him, and, and some of those included some really good players like Hubert Hercotch, uh, who who I ultimately thought that he would get upset by. It was an upset pick, but but I did I did pick it. Um yeah, I mean, ultimately, Casper's avoidance to lose to any of those players, but uh, him losing in the final against Nadal is just, it's nothing different than what we've seen throughout Casper's career. So it, it, I wouldn't suggest that what we saw from Rude is uh, an underperformance, which I was anticipating we might see an underperformance, and I don't think that's really what we got. So that's my answer to that. From Paco, Nadal talked about adding weight uh, to the head of his racket and changing the tension of his of his strings. Also about playing Roland Garros with his old frame, not the the one he used in Australia, nor the one he'll keep using. What's the difference this all makes? He he said that really. All right, this is the first time hearing of it, and uh, with all due respect to Paco, I can't take uh, I can't take him at his full word. I got to confirm something like that before I take it as fact. So I'm not sure. I can't answer that, unfortunately, Paco. Um, okay. Nadal. Here's another thing that I totally don't have no idea if it's like true or not. It's some some chart that shows that Nadal is tested at a competition for PEDs less than everybody else. I have no idea where this chart came from. Can't verify it. So, of course, I will not irresponsibly assume that it is a fact. Got to cite your sources, people, on the internet, or I'm going to ignore you. Uh, David, uh, Iga Sviantek posted the breaking news about her withdrawing from Berlin and will try to recover for Wimbledon and says it's a shoulder problem. How much of a negative factor will this have on her winning streak and her chances at Wimbledon? Will this make Wimbledon more open? Yeah, I mean, on one hand, Iga is inexperienced on grass. So it, it would probably be nice for her to get some some repetition on the surface. But at the same time, uh, not playing any warm-ups is, is hardly something that is foreign for players when it comes to uh, top contenders going from Roland Garros to Wimbledon. And we've seen countless players do it effectively. In fact, it was really the probably the, the lead-up of choice for the vast majority of Nadal and Djokovic's careers, not playing any warm-ups prior to Wimbledon. So I think Iga should be fine. I don't think it affects the winning streak at all. And um, uh, if she were healthy, I would advise that she would play Berlin, but the fact that she's not makes this a pretty easy decision, huh? Um, discuss endurance on clay courts. I don't know. Clay courts reti uh, require more point-to-point -point and cardiovascular endurance. However, it is also less likely that your body is going to wear down because the surface is a little bit more forgiving on the joints. Uh, injuries to top athletes, history, management causes, potential solutions to the tour. Uh, I mean, look, the calendar is way too long, way too long. So, if you want to reduce injuries on tour, that is that is the course of action. For Marius, if you are Nadal, would you rather miss Wimbledon to be in the best possible shape 
in the lead up to the U.S. Open where he has had a much better record? No, no, because there's like, there's plenty of time to rest in between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. So I don't think that you need to sacrifice Wimbledon in order to be healthy in time for the U.S. Open. I just don't think that's necessary. From Kabir, which is your favorite slam? Uh, U.S. Open, U.S. Open childhood slam. Uh, first tennis I ever went to. First tennis or only, you know, I was a ball boy there. Now I work there for U.S. Open radio. It's that that's New York, my favorite place in the world. Nothing like the U.S. Open to me. Nothing will ever beat it. Uh, what are the main differences between Nadal 2005 and Nadal 2022 at Roland Garros? Uh, Nadal 2005, I mean, the main difference is uh, the mentality, the, the, the approach, the approach to the game, honestly. 2005 Nadal doesn't ever want to make a mistake. 2005 Nadal. Um, wants to outlast you and make you suffer on a point-in and point-out basis. 2005 Nadal is the fastest player in tennis. Um, 2022 Nadal is a uh, a player who relies much less on physicality, a player who is willing to take smart risks in order to do damage in the point as as soon as humanly possible in a way that is uh, responsible and high percentage, but deadly and damaging. Federer said that he will not play 20 tournaments per season anymore. Is he really considering playing more seasons at 40? I don't know. You know, if he's healthy, he'll keep playing. I mean, that that's it. If he can be pain-free and he can win matches, then... I think he'll continue to play and travel with his family and and play on tour. From Novak fan, uh, England, how unfair the Wimbledon situation is and how come Nadal and Federer were allowed to decide no points be given when it benefits themselves the most? Yeah, like I, I understand that Nadal and Federer are on the player council, but to say that they decided just ignores that uh, this, you know, the player council is just one leg of a multifaceted committee. So... Um, not to mention, not to mention they're not the only, um, uh, players on the player council. And I, I know that some of those players are now inactive, but they still are active members of the player council. So it's not like they have, um, no say. Um, you know, ultimately I'm sorry, but this decision I will say it again, this decision impacts so many players, men and women, players ranked inside the top 10, players ranked outside the top 50. This is a massive decision. So I refuse to take the, to accept uh, the opinion that this is somehow about the sabotage of Novak Djokovic. This is, I mean, so many players are victims here. Novak is just one of, one of, all right? There are so many here. So I understand that in the bubble of, of Novak Djokovic uh, stardom and, and fandom and with how things went in Australia and 
The U.S. Open default. Like, I can understand you can feel like, oh, this this crap keeps happening. Totally. I get that. But this decision is... This decision starts with a war, okay? It goes to the U.K. government. It goes to the royalty of England. It goes to then the entire ranking system, which affects all players. Do you realize how big this is? Do you realize how big this is compared to Novak, one player? It's so much bigger than Novak. That's all. Your thoughts on opening the roof when it stops raining at the majors? I think I'm I think I'm pro. I think I'm pro opening the roof when it stops raining at majors. If if you're gonna if your policy is whenever the roof can be open, we should have it open, then you know, I think do it. But uh is it something that I'm really passionate about? Is is this like if I become commissioner of tennis, is this in the top twenty things that I'm worried about? No, absolutely not. Uh, that one came from, uh, I can't, I, I don't know. Uh, Maria, uh, will I do videos breaking down next-gen games? Yeah, for sure. Uh, men's tennis is so predictable in terms of who wins majors. Well, can't really argue with that. Uh, from Matt, uh, what do you think of Murray Kyrgios chances at Wimbledon with the right draw? I think both can make deep runs. Uh, Kyrgios... I don't know. It depends how you're defining deep. Yeah, I mean, in, in both cases, I could I could see quarterfinals maximum in both cases. Don't want to elaborate much further than that. Uh, from Tennis in the Park, assume Russia's attack on Ukraine continues into 2023. Wimbledon keeps its player ban, and the ATP still awards no points. Could the ATP take the step of creating a new fourth major to keep the world's rankings from being highly disrupted? If so, what tourney gets the promotion? I don't think they would do that. No way. I don't think so. Um, and by the way, you know, the rankings wouldn't really be disrupted if Wimbledon was left out of the equation. I think the problem with this year is that they're being disrupted because... Because players are are going to drop all the points, you know. So it, it, it's if the points, if this were to happen for a, a a second consecutive year, you would not have this drastic shuffling of the ranking, which is completely not reflective of any actual tennis being played. You wouldn't get that. So. Uh, why hasn't Nadal won more Wimbledons? Great return of serve, huge forehand, great net play, defends really well. Shouldn't that be enough? What Djokovic... I mean, uh, okay, tons of stuff here. Why Djokovic hasn't won more Wimbledons? There's like a lot of small details. Um, like, okay, first of all, the serve not being as big a weapon as it is for Djokovic and Federer. The first serve, that is one thing. The the bounce being lower, that is the second thing. The the bounce being lower is multifaceted because it affects his uh, his stroke production. You know, having to uh, it's a little bit tougher on his knees, um, and it also affects his preferred return position, which is a deep return position. 
So you say he's a great returner, but he's a much worse returner on grass than he is on other surfaces. Uh, you can talk about how much time he has on his forehand. That is another factor. You can talk about the fact that he has to hit more backhands because there's less time to run around his forehand and he doesn't get to play as much invertido, run around backhand. Uh, these are all reasons why Nadal is worse on grass than he is on um, clay and hard. Operating on the assumption that Iga can currently beat most players at their best with her best, if you're a WTA coach witnessing Iga's utter dominance, what do you do to tailor your players' games specifically to beat Iga, or do you focus on making their strengths better and wait? Uh, my best answer to that question is I'm looking at Iga's forehand, and I'm like, how can we try to start to approach this thing? How do we build that as a weapon? Iga has now raised the bar. Uh, Iga, ha again, she's hitting her forehand like, you know, in the same way that, that players do on the ATP Tour with this, you know, incredibly high rate of RPM with, uh, with enough speed in, in combination with that, uh, where, where you have a, a deadly high margin, high margin weapon. And if I'm a coach on the WTA tour, I am just thinking, okay, look, if if Iga's gonna if Iga's gonna bring that weapon to the table, how can we start to match her and bring a similar weapon to the table on the forehand wing? Much easier said than done. Um if you were to put out an early Wimbledon power ranking, are you taking the likes of FAA and Berrettini over Nadal? No, I'm not at the moment. Uh, from Bruno, in terms of racket skills and fitness, is Alcaraz the most complete teenager of all time? Yeah, not really qualified to answer that. Um, you know, didn't witness Nadal, didn't witness Becker. You know, there were more great teenagers. Didn't witness Chang. Can't really answer that. Uh, from Vakash, uh, who is the best sportsman in tennis? Man, I mean, that is not... I don't think that's something where, like, there's a the best, right? There is, like, you're either a great sportsman... Or you are a like good or average or below average, right? Like this isn't like this isn't like freaking average first serve speed where someone's in first place. Uh, but who are like the nice guys, the the most uncontroversial nice guys of the tour? I would say like Berrettini, Hercotch, Monfils. There's her names, right? Uh, maybe Rude, but hey, Rude just had a dust up. All right, Rude might might get knocked down to above average. He go goes from elite to above average in uh in congeniality. And then the second one here is which player has benefited most from conflicts of interest? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to say, you want me to say Federer here? I think, I think, I think Vakash probably wants me to say Federer. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, There are conflicts of interest in tennis because tennis is not organized like a normal sport at all. Um, and any powerful player can create, can and does create conflicts of interest. I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, IMG, uh, player players' agencies run tournaments, okay? Uh, like Tony Godsick and Team 8 
you know, runs tournaments. You have players. I I, I don't know. It, it go it goes on and on and on and on. Okay, but um, has there been a particularly egregious instance of a conflict of interest in tennis which has left me outraged and feeling like the integrity of the sport has been compromised? There actually hasn't. Uh, go ahead. You know, you got you guys can try to suggest one to me in the comments. Um, has there been an instance of conflict of interest, which I am not denying doesn't exist. I think it is all over the sport. It is everywhere. It is rampant. But has it reached at any point or in any instance an extreme level to the extent where I think it has seriously compromised the integrity of the sport? You let me know because I haven't really seen that. Man, there's so many Twitter replies here. Uh, Nadal Djokovic on grass. I'm not going to do that. I've been answering that for, for years now. Um, could Sampras have competed with the big three? I mean, you know, it, it's impossible to say, right? You'd have to... Uh, my answer to that is yes, because he was a great player. But he would be... Sampras would be a completely different player if you put him in this era. He would His game would look completely different. Uh, okay. Nadal said he was injected with painkillers and cortisone. Those are performance-enhancing drugs. No, they're not. Yeah. Then okay. So here's another. Here's another. Uh, Nadal is on. Is taking steroids. Yeah. No, they're not. No, they're not. You know, there are so many, so many different aspects of painkilling, which has been deemed legal by ASADA and uh, drug regulators, performance-enhancing drug regulators uh, across all sports. Uh, and really what, what has been banned largely in sports are drugs that, and, and, you know, some of these drugs do aid in, in recovery of injury, like human growth hormone and, and steroids, but, uh, drugs that improve, um, endurance and strength building and ability to recover quickly. Those are the drugs that are generally circled, but not not painkilling. Painkilling is is widely accepted, and it should be, quite frankly, because it would be cruel if we did not allow athletes to painkill at their own leisure. That I would have a, I would have an issue with that. I think you know players should be able to take cortisone shots uh, if they if they wish. I'm a I'm a staunch uh, defender of that. From uh, Andrew, uh, how much of an impact has the 2021 French Open final had on Tsitsipas? Although on paper he had a good clay court season, in particular at the Master events, he just doesn't seem quite the player um, since then. Maybe I'm being harsh. It will be interesting to see what he does look like on the grass. As I write this, he's in the quarterfinals in Stuttgart up against Murray. So what does a successful grass court season look like for him? Yeah, and he, he lost to Murray. I don't think the the French Open final has had as much of an impact on his elbow. Because I think his elbow um, inhibited him, him on court in the latter stages of 2021. Then I think it triggered an equipment change at the start of 2022. 
And now I'm still not convinced that Steph is confident in his equipment. I think it's a major red flag, as I said, a major red flag that Tsitsipas was talking about his equipment after his loss to Rune. Because if he was talking about it after the match, that means he was talking about it during the match. He was thinking about it during the match. And that is the worst thing as a tennis player you can possibly be thinking about is your equipment. You have to be focusing on yourself, what you have to do, your opponent, what they are doing to hurt you, how you are going to counter that. When you are in your own head about your own equipment, which should, should be the last thing in the world that you think about, you're in trouble. Look, there are some technical things that are still an issue for him that, that have not been remedied as effectively as uh, you would like. Especially, It's especially discouraging because some of those things appeared to have been getting better at the start of clay court season with Thomas Enquist, but I don't know what happened with Enquist. I haven't seen him anymore, so I don't know. Next one from Rainfred Romero. Can you elaborate on Sebastian Baez's style of play? Quote, a short player that plays big man tennis. Also, as a Ferrer fan, do you think his play style is still effective in the current generation of players? And what would his ranking be if he's on his prime at the moment, man. Um, uh, let me let me answer the first one. Mostly, uh, when I, I tweeted something like that, that Baez is a little man that plays big man tennis. Uh, what I mean by that is he's the opposite of uh, the the prototype that we've seen, like Zverev, uh, who is a, a a big guy, and you know we're used to big guys having big power, but. We're used to big big guys being slow. Well, Zverev isn't slow. So in that sense, big Zverev is a big guy with little guy movement. When I say Baez is a, is a little guy who plays like a big guy, what I mean by that is he's a little guy, so you expect him to be fast, and he is fast. You expect him to be underpowered, however. He's not. He's got, he's got a lot of power. He's like Fanini, but with more intensity. And more willingness to defend and a better mentality. So um, that's what I mean when when he's a a little guy who plays big man tennis. I mean he's a little guy with the speed, but he's got the big man power. That's what I mean. And yeah, I, I think he's I think he can be effective. I'm excited to see what he can do in his career. Uh, Goldwolf says uh, asks uh, be honest, Gilly Bob. Simple question: Don't wuss out. Who's the goat? Who's the goat? I just want to make a point here. That's why I included this question to make this point. You know, Nadal fans and Djokovic fans were so annoyed when Federer was wrongly and annoyingly anointed the GOAT in the middle of his career, okay? After passing Sampras and, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012 days. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, you know, Federer was anointed the GOAT like in the middle of his career, right? And that was like, at the time, might have felt normal, but it was actually like pretty naive and aged horribly, right? So why are we trying to do that again? Like, I feel like Nadal and Djokovic fans of all populations should understand that we should just chill and not do this exercise after every major. Because after, after Roland Garros in... You know, and Wimbledon in 2021, it was uh, it was like, oh, like let's let's make a case for Djokovic, and now it's like let's make a case for Nadal. Like let's just not. 
How about that? Let's just chill. Take a chill pill and a deep breath and relax and take in what we're what we're seeing and and talk about all of the things that are interesting right now, such as uh, how Nadal was able to beat Djokovic last week at Roland Garros. Let's talk about Wimbledon. Um, let's talk about these very interesting things that are right in front of us, not who is the GOAT. Much less interesting than those things at the moment. Hi, Gil. Do you have any predictions for who might be able to challenge Igor Sviantek in the coming years? Are there candidates already in the top 10 or top 20? Um, or are you looking further out to potential stars such as uh, Zhang and the Fruvertova sisters? Yeah, my like... My instinct, like my gut instinct, is actually to kind of look towards the teenagers because, you know, so many of these older players, I I just feel like we've we've seen what they can do already and it, it feels unsatisfying when compared to Iga. Okay, I don't want to disparage some of these great players, right? But I'm I'm thinking about thinking about Muguruza and Sakari and Sabalenka. Uh Muguruza stands out among that group because she's a multiple uh, major champion. Uh, but uh, some of these players who we thought were going to contend big time in 2022, who who just haven't to the extent that we thought that they would. So yeah, I mean, I will. I would say, you know, my answer is I don't know. However, I will say I do like this group of teenagers. I do like Clara Towson. I like Junction Wen. I like Layla Fernandez. I'm I'm unsure about Emma Raducanu. I, I do like her as well. Um, am I missing anybody? I like Cami uh, Osorio, especially on clay. So so there is a good young crop coming up. They are they are very good. But but I don't I don't know. It is very unclear who might challenge Iga. But I'm confident someone will emerge. I I really am. From Afbu, hey Gil, uh, thank you for your coverage. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on Holgerun. You mentioned his cramping as a limiting factor. Uh, did he convince you in that regard? And what do you think of his behavior on court? I don't think he convinced me. It seemed like he was kind of cramping at towards the tail end of the Titi Pass match. But, you know, it would be hard to imagine him going his whole career and he just can't figure out the cramping, right? It doesn't really seem too likely. So, I feel like he'll sort it out eventually. There will be some doctor somewhere that will give Holger the magical keys to, to sorting out the cramping issue. I am confident. Uh, so, I, I don't think he dispelled that completely, but um, he certainly showed his amazing tennis, which I, I think will be a factor uh, in, in years to come. What do I think of his behavior on court? Uh, you know... You guys know me. I'm not, I don't approach this from a fan perspective. So you can hate it. You can love it. I'm cool either way. My thing is, uh, I think it's good for the sport. I just do. I think someone who who might get in a little bit of a dust-up from time to time, who might generate some bad blood, who might create some rivalries that go beyond, oh, there's a 
five to four head to head. They play a lot, right? Like anyone who can generate that kind of thing, anyone who's not afraid to be confident, um, I'm into that. So if you want to hate it, if you want to be like, I can't stand Holger Rune, kid, kid sucks, can't stand him. If, if you want to be that, I, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm totally not going to tell you wrong. What I am going to tell you is you feeling that way is probably a good thing for tennis. Probably a good thing. Uh, Josh Liu. Hi, Gil. Uh, what did you find to be the most compelling storyline at this year's Roland Garros? Also, do you think Rafa gained any ground in the mental battle between he and Djokovic? I find the mental battle to be a little bit overblown. I just think that, you know, these players both feel like they can beat each other. And by the time they are two games in and they're sharing the court, I mean, come on, the head-to-head -head is 30 to 29. Like, they get it. Like, it's going to be a battle. Nobody has a mental edge. It's it's a it's a match to match basis. Okay, more than anything, what has determined the winner of this of these matches has been the surface. Let can we be honest about this head to head? It's mostly been the surface. Okay, uh, most compelling storyline, most compelling storyline, huh? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think there was much of a common thread here. I, I thought that I thought that the most captivating part was uh, probably Nadal's run. Nadal's run was probably the most captivating. Um, top half of the draw, just following the top half of the draw from the quarterfinal and beyond. Um, and you can throw in the FAA match, which was extremely uh, intriguing from Nadal's perspective. I thought that, that that was the part of the tournament that, that had the most going for it, the most juice. For Max Dangvu, hey Gil, if you were an advisor to Medvedev, what would you do to help improve his forehand and volleys? Uh, what would you recommend him? Oh, would you recommend him getting a new voice in the coaching box? Uh, he has played the same way since his rise in 2019, and I wonder if it's time to change things up technically and improve his weaknesses rather than amplifying his strengths. Also, would you tell him to change his return position? I would definitely try to work on having options as a return position. I have no problem with the deep position being his plan A, but I definitely work on on creating that plan B and maybe not getting up close to the baseline, but just a little bit closer. Something I would definitely work on with Medvedev, especially for grass. Now, um, as far as improving the forehand, I still wonder if he can improve his upper body strength, but at this point, it's very possible that the answer to that question is no, and that he can't. He's 26 years old. It might be genetic. His capacity to build muscle might just not be there. And what it is is what it is. That that potentially could be true. But I um, mean, it's sometimes difficult for players or human beings in general who are six foot six to put muscle on. But uh, I would generally like to see a little bit more muscle in his ground game, and I think that would help him add a little bit extra. His volleys, I don't know, those could be long gone. Um, the technique is just so far off on his volleys that I don't know if there's anything that can really uh, bring those back. From Miguel, I'd like to know your opinion on something. 
I've been noticing for a while now, FAA's backhand is still super inconsistent despite a few improvements in the last couple of years. About a month ago, I watched him in person at Estoril and I noticed how much topspin he was trying to put on his backhand. And I just felt like he was trying to force it so much that his ball was just not clean at all. And the movement looked unnatural. You have so many examples of players with super consistent backhands with a more linear, uh, linear trajectory like Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev, etc. I can add a couple for you. Schwartzman. I could add Jill Simone. Anyway, uh, it just feels like FAA is losing so many points trying to force that amount of topspin and completely missing the sweet spot uh, on his racket, causing the ball to go out. Do you agree? If so, why hasn't he tried to correct it with his team? Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of FAA's backhand, but it's also never been like a glaring weakness in the same breath. So um, I think what you're seeing is totally accurate. He has a high RPM forehand, but it's pretty slow. We talked about that with like a Casper Rude. I think FAA's backhand is a little bit less severe in that sense compared to Rude. Uh, but he's got a lot of left wrist action. And you're right, he doesn't come through the ball. Uh, he doesn't come through the ball in a way that can flatten it out, um, which I, I do think is a weakness. He doesn't go down the line very well. It's not great. Look, the reason why players can hit heavy topspin on their forehand and it can still be a huge weapon and you know is because of the racket speed. But you got to keep in mind that players on the backhand, they don't generate the same racket acceleration, not even close. So that is why you see players hit backhands flatter. That is why you see WTA players play flatter than ATP players because they swing a little bit slower. The racket speed is a little bit slower. And in order to get that same penetration through the court, you have to flatten out a little bit. That's what you do. So FAA doesn't really do that. Um, I would say for his backhand, he does get decent weight of shot on it, however. And if he can just go consistent cross court, it's not pretty. I don't love it. But all he's got to do is trade it, be consistent, set up his forehand. That's all he really has to do. He also has a pretty nice slice, which I think he'll use a lot on grass, and I think he should. From Ian Novak, if Novak had been Zverev's height, would he have been a better or worse player? Yeah, kind of a funny question. Strange. Um, Look, I mean, you never know, right? But if, if Novak could maintain his skills and be Zverev's height, then, then he'd be a great player, maybe even better. I don't know. House of Leaves. Hey, Gil, and just a couple of more here, guys. Hey, Gil, I remember on a previous mailbag, you mentioned tennis having systematic problems in the way in which it markets itself. Uh, what do you think are the main problems, and how do you think it can improve? Long question could do a 20-minute video, but I will, uh, I'll throw out the first thing that came to mind. You know, tennis does not allow natural forces to help. Tennis markets itself. Tennis doesn't allow the public to market tennis. There's not enough uh, fan-generated content because the rules around what you're allowed to show, the uh, the rights and, and, and all of that, the viral, you know, the power of the viral video 
is so, so important nowadays. And tennis has restricted that. And that stunts the growth, in my opinion, of the sport's uh, digital footprint, which is so important. So that embargo that the tournaments and the tours and the broadcast um, the broadcast rights holders have, that embargo that they have on the actual footage, I think is extremely damaging for the way tennis markets itself. That is just one example. I am going to leave it at that. Again, there were plenty of other uh, really awesome questions that unfortunately I couldn't get to. Feel free to leave it in the next mailbag. And uh, that concludes my uh, coverage of Roland Garros 2022. I am so happy with how everything went. I appreciate everyone who left a kind comment under any of my videos throughout the fortnight. The views have been awesome. The comment section for this mailbag have been awesome. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. Big things ahead for Wimbledon. Really excited, especially for the second week. Uh, I'm not going to talk about what, but exciting uh, milestone for the channel coming. I did pass 15,000 subscribers during this event. So uh, it's been incredibly rewarding for me. I owe it to you. I thank you guys. And um, a reminder that the way you can support the channel is to share this video. Make sure you're subscribed. You can be, you can join and become a member uh, by hitting the join button and um, to leave a uh, to donate two dollars every single month, less than the price of a cup of coffee every single month to ensure the long term financial viability of the channel. Uh, all those things are a huge help. Hope you enjoyed, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time.